0: Hey y'all, welcome to the Functional Physio podcast where we dive deep into fitness, movement and the complex layers of your health from micro to the macro. Let's jump on in. Okay, so I'm Dr. JJ Hurst. I'm a physical therapist at Functional Physio. And today with me, I have the great pleasure of um, Mary Alice Farina, who is an amazing massage therapist, equine therapist, who's really, dive deep into a lot of interesting and unique modalities, and Mary Alice was actually one of my first teachers uh, for visceral manipulation. So today's podcast, we're going to be diving into what visceral manipulation is to sort of understand why this modality is so powerful and so useful and how it can be used to sort of diagnose or work with those quote-unquote common problems, but also to really talk about fascia and the Western medical model and the importance of our symptoms. Um, So welcome Mary Alice.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah Um, and so whenever I have podcasts I actually like to sort of step back a little bit and think about where you the practitioner are coming from as a person because we're all people and so I'm curious what was your understanding of bodies and movement when you were a child?
1: Well I grew up um, with a lot of animals horses and dogs. Uh, my mom put me on a horse at a very young age, probably before I was even walking. Um, (laughs) and, and so, you know, when you grow up around animals, um, part of animal husbandry and caring for them is recognizing when they're in distress or when recognizing when they have a problem because they can't speak to us and say that. So I've always watched how things move or how things sound or how things look um when we had puppies I could tell my mom which puppy was crying from across the room and she's like how do you do that I'm like I don't know it just sounds like you know whichever puppy it was so um but apparently I could also interpret for my brother when he was zero to two I could tell her what he wanted so that's just one of those things But um yeah so I, I think appreciating that animals should move in a certain way and be comfortable moving in that way. Um, And then, you know, my mom was physical therapist, my dad, a pediatric cardiologist. And I think my mom was the first person to teach me if it hurts, rub it and it will feel better, you know, because I would complain about my shoulder or something after doing a lot of work in the barn. And she would do Cyriax friction massage, which if you've ever had that, you know, is not pleasant. So you'd sit there and go. And then And then she'd say there. And I was like, oh, well, it does feel better. So, you know, that kind of started that. And and, um, her father, my grandfather, Tom, probably is the person who got me interested in massage because we used to trade when this is like when I'm five. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Neck rubs for hair brushing. So I would rub his neck and then he would brush my hair until the point I was about drooling. And then, you know, you know, when we would be visiting and then I
0: would head off to bed. So.
1: Um, yeah. So I think that kind of started that whole touch is a good thing.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like a really rich environment of the body and of listening, right? So you were, you were listening to animals, you were listening to your own body, and then you were being sort of supported by someone with the more biomechanical aspects. Um, And so you are actually pretty unique, or at least unique from my perspective of like you work with humans and with horses. And so (laughs) I'm curious about like, how did you transition to that particular niche into this particular balance of work?
1: Well, growing up, I wanted to be actually a physical therapist for horses. And that was not a career in this country. Um, The option I was given was, well, you got to go to vet school, and then you'll have to go to PT school. And I think I quickly calculated like, okay, 16 years of school. I'm not interested. Very expensive. Um, uh, yeah, very expensive. And and um, and that was because my mom and I had the opportunity to work on a Grand Prix jumper who is in rehab at the veterinary clinic around the corner from us. We used to actually um, house uh, Cornell veterinary students doing their summer internship. They used to live with us. And so I had that experience of veterinary students being in our home wow. for the summer. And, you know, coming home and saying, oh, I was just at the standard bread farm, we had to, you know, deworm, you know, 200 yearlings or something like that. So um, got a really good idea of what that was like to be a veterinarian. And, um, and so when this horse was injured. Um, he was a Grand Prix jumper and he had come to the veterinary practice there and and uh, he couldn't bear weight on one of his legs. And because mm-hmm. he was not doing that, he had a lot of atrophy. And so the veterinarian said, Nancy, that's my mom, you know, is there anything you could do? And she said, well, you know, let me let me uh, go take a look. And she asked me if I wanted to go along. And of course I did. And so with massage and ultrasound and laser, we were able to get him comfortable enough to bear weight on that leg. And then eventually to be able to lie down and rest because he was in a lot of discomfort and without being able to bear weight on that side, he wasn't really resting his muscles really well. Yeah. Um, That kind of sparked that. Um, And I actually learned to massage horses before people back in 1995 I went to Mary Schreiber's School of equissage and learned to work on horses first. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then in uh, 97, I graduated from human massage school. I'd moved to Wilmington, North Carolina at that time. And um, so, you know, I would say probably working with horses first before people gave me an advantage in that you learn how to read all the signs in the body that are very subtle that don't come from human speech so
0: yeah you really have to listen more and like absolutely. with the background in animals that definitely comes yep. through um and is one of the foundational principles of visceral manipulation
1: absolutely absolutely
0: yeah and uh, so for for our listeners who don't quite know what visceral manipulation is or or kind of like a little confused about what that might be, how would you define visceral manipulation?
1: Sure. Uh, so visceral manipulation is using the hands very gently to support and treat the organs in placement. So we're, we're not uh, moving things around in the body that don't want to be moved around. Um, And because all of our organ system are suspended and held in place by uh, fascial, uh, visceral ligaments, which are a part of fascia or fascial force fields or fascial wrappers, linings, um, membranes, uh, we're really working with those. So it's not that I'm like poking into your liver per se, it's that I'm working with the support structure that holds the liver in place. Everything in the body is supposed to be in motion. Um, and it's kind of like everything under the ocean moves with the ocean tide, going back yeah. and forth, the coral, like, you know, you watch Finding Nemo, everything moves. And yeah. in our body, it's supposed to do the same thing. And we run into problems when motion stops. Um, and so, with visceral manipulation, we can help restore that motion back to the body um, because we say that there are two things that are important, motility and mobility. Mobility is how well can an organ move. Um, and that's really important in range of motion as, you know, as far as like structural kinesiology being able to move. Yeah. If you and your listeners at home uh, put their right, take your right arm, Sure, take your left arm, And put it across your body, across your belly, and you kind of hold on to your shirt at about your rib cage and hold on to that nice and tightly. And then you try and raise your right arm. It's going to limit your right arm range of motion and that you have put your hand right over the fascia around your liver. So Mm -hmm. one of the ways we can improve, for example, right shoulder range of motion is to do a double listening between the arm and the fascia around the liver. And a lot of people are surprised to find out it's their liver not letting their arm move, not actually the glenohumeral joint. Yeah, Um, And then motility is this kind of, we call it how happy is the organ in doing its job. And that is the natural motion left over from embryological migration. So all of our organs develop along the midline, they move away from that midline. And, you know, so we have the, or the liver on the right side, stomach on the left, and they have this natural uh, motion generally um, from one side of the body back to the center of the body and then away from the body again. There's some exceptions to that rule, but that, that uh, kind of waving back and forth inside the body and that, you know, tidal ocean of our body is that motility. And when there's no motility, it tells us that that organ is not very happy doing its job.
0: Yeah, I remember at one of my trainings for VM, I worked with someone one day and their liver was pretty happy. And then the next day they came in and I was like, "Whoa, your liver's super like cranky today. It's not moving as well." And they're like, "Oh, well, I did drink like six shots of vodka last night." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, yeah, I could I could see why your liver wouldn't be as happy today." Pretty direct. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um
0: and for just to sort of go through and make sure fascia is not something that everyone's familiar with. I think there's definitely a rising awareness, but I like to think about fascia as the wrapping around a lot of our muscles and our organs and sort of the connective tissue Mm in between. Um, And I can always joke that like nature really likes to double bag. It's essentially (laughs) like Yeah, Yeah, yeah. like major double bagged all of our organs to make sure it's extra safe, extra wrapped up. And I think what Mary Alice is talking about when she talks about sort of the motion and the mobility is about how well can that double bag move around the organ as well as the movement of the organ itself. Yeah, the fascia.
1: Um, the latest fascia research shows that the fascia goes all the way from the outside of the organ into the organ, into the cell, and in and around the nucleus. the cell in the organ yeah i know crazy right so it really is uh the matrix and that's a great word to be using right now with the fourth matrix movie coming out but (laughs) um it's that uh foundation for cells to live in so another way to think of fascia at a cellular level is like the honeycomb that the cells live in that give them structure if you Mm -hmm. took all that structure away everything would kind of be amorphous like a slime mold kind of thing so um and connective tissue itself is uh, it's a really interesting tissue. You know, with all these different tissues in the body and people don't realize that both blood and bone are highly specialized connective tissue. And so you're like, well, how is that the same thing? Well, the way I used to explain it to my massage students is think about how we make soup or stew. If it's a stew when it has less fluid you know, it's more when it's drier, it's a stew. And when you have more fluid, if it's mostly fluid, it's like a broth. And so uh, connective tissue and fascia have this kind of thixotropic property where it can be more like a liquid or more like a solid or more like a gel. Uh, Jello gelatin is another great way to think about fascia, you know, because when you first make jello, the water's really hot and it's very um, viscous. And then as Mm -hmm. it starts to set up in your fridge, it moves even less. And then if you use less water and more collagen, more gelatin, it sets up and you get jello jigglers and you can actually you know, pick up the jello and wave it or gummy bears are really, really tight, really, really hard. Um, so we can think about our fascia in terms of that. But um, I think in the past, fascia has been this garbage waste material that you cut away to have access to things. Yeah. Um, I actually think that cooks and chefs know a whole lot more about fascia than most physicians do, because they understand that compartmentalization that you were talking about, that that double bagging, that separating out like the, the wine box separator, separating the six bottles of wine. We have different parts in the body that do that. We separate the anterior thigh from the medial thigh from the posterior thigh to give it stability and to give it structure and to give it strength. And so, you know, if you're a cook, our chef and you've had to, you know, uh, dress up a side of beef or a side of, you know, a whole hog, you understand how you have to work with those different planes to get everything to separate into those different cuts of meat. Yeah. And in the past, I think physicians have just thought, well, that's that white stuff we got to get out of the way. And what we've realized is it's a highly specialized information system. So it talks to our brain and arguably it might even talk to our brain then more than all of our uh, sensors in our musculoskeletal system. And one of the other kind of cool things about fascia that they found, this is a couple of fascia congresses ago that if photon, um, fascia emits photons. Um, And the photon emission, so that's light, right? Um, So we know light travels super fast and um, it's not like super bright. It's like a candle, looking at one candle from 16 miles away, bright, but it's still a light. And so light transmission is really quick. So that's how working with fascia, you can make a a, uh, transition really quickly is because that information system gets sent. And then the message to the brain and, and you know, as uh, Jean-Pierre Barral, who is the, the person who's written our curriculum, and that's where I get all my training from is the Barral Institute, uh, says, you know, we are waking up a little something in the body. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get a message from the organ back to the brain, and then the brain can do things with that information.
0: And I think it was in the spark in the machine, which is sort of a discussion of like a a Western practitioner who really dove into fascia, um, also found that like humans naturally emit light through those fascial points where there's like intersections of that double bag or those threads meeting. And so when we talk about sort of like how we are light sensitive, um, it's not just that like we're receiving it and sensitive to the sun, we're also sending it out. Um, and so like, if someone puts their hands on you or points them at you, there is actually like an energetic experience happen of like photons emitting from them, which is so fascinating. Yes. Um,
1: we like to say, uh, you know, you're a little Iron Man here, you know, the
0: little glowing light,
1: that's uh, 70 pico amps that yeah. a human can emit, which happens to be the same frequency that causes Bones to knit. So a bone stimulator um, uses using seventy picoamps, and that's what a human being can emit as well. As well. Okay. So it's kind of interesting.
0: amazing, yeah. And so the organs, fascia. I think we're all sort of in this wave of realizing that tissue is not necessarily this very like separate biomechanical lever. Um, exactly. The very classical physics. Because if you do most of the math for the classical physics, we would actually rip ourselves apart. Absolutely. And so fascia is really a big part of sort of this more quantum physics where we're a little bit more squishy, more liquidy. And I also like to think about fascia as like cornstarch, right? Mm -hmm. Like in water of like, if you hit it with a lot of force, it reorganizes to have a lot of structure. Um, right, and then if you approach it really gently, which is sort of the perspective of the slow inflation, it really adapts and changes. And I think yes. that's exactly why that light pressure is so important. Yes,
1: absolutely. Um, I joke. I, I happen to work with some military um, in our area, and uh, so I, I like to tease them that there's no defense against five grams of pressure, and you know they'll be quiet for maybe 20 minutes, and then they'll say what do you mean by that? So, you know, as you put your hand very gently on a body, it's like, okay, does your body defend against that? And they're like, oh no. And I'm like, right. So your body's inviting me in with that kind of pressure. So when you're invited into the body, you can do a whole lot more than when you're perceived as another threat. So
0: yeah. And like, especially with like, I've got some clients that are like, you know, like I'm ready for you to really make it hurt. Physical therapy, it's perfect Tuesday. And sometimes, like, that's what people need. They need me to meet them with that much pressure so that their nervous system can then relax. Um, But it's then when they relax that I then transition to that softer because that's when I feel like I'll make the, like, more sustainable change. And so it's almost like working with the pressure that their nervous system needs to regulate and then working at the pressure that their fascia needs to actually shift. Sure.
1: In uh, NLP, we call that match, pace, and lead. <laughs> yep. So you know, match somebody's energy, you match how much pressure they need to then, uh, you know, be willing to follow you. Yeah.
0: So. Okay. And so that's sort of like, we, we went into a really fun world of visceral and fascia. And I'm curious of like, okay, like how did you go from horses to the work that you do today? Like working with people, working with clients and even working with our military?
1: Uh, So in 97, I became a licensed massage therapist and um, state licensing in North Carolina followed shortly thereafter. Um, uh, So uh, yeah, so in 97, I was just certified. And then licensing came on, I think, about 2000, 2001 in North Carolina. I don't remember the exact date on that. When I was 16, I was kicked in my respiratory diaphragm by a horse. And I Ooh. went, yeah, I was at a horse show on a Friday morning at a local fair and went flying through the air about 21 feet. No one ever saw me actually get kicked. They just saw me sail through the air. And I actually have to land on the ground in front of a truck and trailer being driven by, of all things, a nurse. So, you know, she immediately got out and um, started uh, taking care of me. So that resulted in a trip to uh, the emergency room. And long story short, I didn't have any internal damage that I needed surgery or anything for. Um, The one physician said, well, it's a good thing, young lady, you don't believe in eating breakfast because, you know, he said, if you had food in your stomach, it would have blown a hole in the back. You know, I would have basically blown a hole out the back of the stomach, like a bocce ball. Um, Or, you know, when you play croquet, that would have just, the physics would have done that. Um, I'm not so sure. I, you know, The military bodies inform me about just how much force a human body can take and still hold onto its container. So the fascial system is pretty incredible in how much force it can dissipate. So um, yeah, so I get kicked by a horse and I don't need surgery. So that's pretty impressive. Um, But then you fast forward to I'm 33 years old and I had this lateral left abdominal pain. Um, It's pretty low. Um, kind of in the inguinal area and you know I went through a number of tests I had a pregnancy test because that's the first thing that you think of is a tough pregnancy always test what sure and then um, had upper and lower GI series contrast cat scan and so after doing all this I've I've got an appointment with a a gastroenterologist and he's looking at my films and you know he said you know we I can't really see your, I mean, I see your spleen, but, and it looks fine, but he said, um, I can't really palpate your spleen and you're a small enough person. I should be able to palpate your spleen. And I said, well, I've been saying this to everyone. Is it a possibility that there's scar tissue? Because I was kicked in the respiratory diaphragm, you know, as a child and, uh, or, you know, as a 16 year old and, you know, could I have grown some scar tissue? And, um, Used to be that when you did a um, connective tissue massage on that area, the relief of the horseshoe would actually show up in my dermis. So you can actually see.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you can see the shape step. of the horseshoe in your yep. tissue.
1: Yep. Yeah, that would just like raise to the surface with like a dermographic yeah. experience. So it was, it was pretty interesting. And so he was like, well, you know, and it, maybe when it becomes a problem, we, we'll we go in and take a look. And I, you know, at that point I started to cry and he's like, you know, mm-hmm. what's with all the emotion? I said, if a sock drops on the floor, I can't pick it up. I've been taking, you know, I was at the time I had been taking 14 Advil at a crack, which I know you can't do that. Um, day, had, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I had a um, patient who was a emergency room physician. So he um, got me on oral tortle to manage the pain. So I wasn't able to do my full load of massage that I was doing. I was in a lot of pain. I couldn't do a lot of general activity. Like I couldn't run a vacuum. I couldn't bend over and pick things up. Certainly couldn't work out or exercise. And, uh, you know, as my husband at the time said, you know, and the whole time he's thinking it's cancer and nobody's saying those words. So it was pretty scary time. And so, um, he's like, okay, well, we're going to go in and we'll do a diagnostic lab. And because we don't know what we're dealing with, because we had talked through the possibility of a hernia in a different um, vector that we couldn't really see on the tests. And so he said, We'll have a plastic surgeon, a gastroenterologist, and an OBGYN. All so in, my, I, in your lab, all doctors there for that diagnostic lab. And so um, you know, when I woke up after the surgery and they're showing me the pictures of scar tissue the size of my little pinky hooked around my left fallopian into pulling it down at a right angle, that was that pain that they kept trying to tell me was psoas pain and I would palpate my psoas and say, no, this is my psoas and I still have hip flexion and the two are not related, it's something yeah. else and nothing makes it go away, nothing makes it you know, better. Um, And then they also said, how have you ever gone to the bathroom? And I was like, what do you mean? And they said, well, your whole large intestine is adhered to your abdominal wall. And I'm like, well, that's probably why I don't like crunches all that much. But um, i like, I don't know. I eat salad. I go every day. I don't know what to tell you. So it's just incredible what they found. And so, of course, they cut and burned and cut and burned because that's what they do when they find scar tissue and adhesions. And then they also told me, um, you know, you'll never get pregnant. So. Nine days after surgery, they told me and my husband that we were okay to try for a family. And they said it would be years. I probably wouldn't get pregnant. And then 14 days later, I was pregnant
0: with my son. Oh, wow. So I credit body my son. Was like, I just need that little bit of scar tissue out of the way. I'm ready.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I credit my son with doing the first visceral manipulation I had because he was a very active baby. He was nine pounds and I think he did a really good job of moving all those sliding surfaces around in there Mm. while he was growing and giving me enough room. Um, Because of course, as soon as you expose serous fluid in the abdomen to air, it becomes contact cement. So that's one of the the drawbacks about opening up the abdomen is now you're going to have scar tissue. There's just no way around it. Things are going to get stuck. And so I think like I said, he was my first visceral
0: therapist
1: <laughs> doing things from the inside out. And going um,
0: slowly, right? Because like, I mean, the, nine uh, months is like a, a sort of a yeah. short time period, but also like your tissue was getting that accommodated stress over time.
1: Right. right. And then uh, when he was uh, 10 years old, so 11 years later, after having the surgery, I, that nagging pain started coming back. And I was like, oh, I know what this is. That's that's that scar tissue acting up again. And uh, so at that point I said, well, I've got to enroll in the visceral manipulation curriculum. At that point I had found it. I knew I wanted to learn it. And it just so happened that um, they were coming to Asheville, North Carolina and you know, that as they say is the rest of the story. So uh, I signed up for the core pack and went on through. Um, I've always been one of those therapists, uh, from since massage school that really wanted to get to the cause, not just treat symptomology. Yes. Um, you know, growing up as an equestrian, I had my fair share of falls and, and, uh, knocks and, uh, I had a whiplash, um, to my own neck where I didn't fall off the horse, but her head came up and hit me in the face and Ooh. whiplash Um, jumping something called a bank and I kind of lived with a chronic posterior head pain you know a headache that was there all the time and when I was in massage school we had a cervical pain seminar that we went to with the the massage school sponsored and we went there and and uh, about halfway through one of the labs my partner had treated half my head and I was like what is that it's like, oh, that's the absence of pain in half my head. And so that was that eye-opening moment where I was like, okay, massage can actually do stuff more than just make you feel good, make you feel relaxed. It can um, treat- massage can treat chronic conditions that have been there all along. So I was like, that's definitely what I want to do because I had had physical therapy. I had some other, I had some cranial work. Um, I had to, ha- um, and I do cranial work, so nothing against that, but it just wasn't getting to those particular structures. So, again, uh, opening my mind up to that the right tool applied in the right way in the right place can actually help and solve something.
0: Absolutely. So. And that's very much like our principle at FP or functional physio is like, I actually want to get to the root cause of what's going on with you. And so, some of my clients will be like, why are you looking at my hip? Like I'm coming in for my shoulder. And I'm like, well, do you know how many muscles actually connect? And if you've got that core weakness that's manifesting in that hip and that rotation, your shoulder's not going to load properly. And so they'll always be so surprised if I do a fascial release down near like a hip that then like their shoulder just resets automatically without me having to touch it. Yes. And so it's like really, really honing in on sort of where like okay your symptoms are information but often like the victim is not the perpetrator whoever is like yelling is usually the one that's been compensating or, or working really hard because someone else isn't doing their job right right yeah yes yeah. yeah absolutely yeah
1: Uh, the way visceral therapists get through kind of all that body dialogue like the patient having these symptoms which I do want to hear about when I see somebody but initially when they walk through we do something called a general listening and so I'm going to put my hand on top of your head kind of like this uh, load the weight of my hand plus a little bit more and uh, that gets us like a target area as we feel through the fascial system where everything is pulling to in the body in that moment. So, right. today, in moment in that time, if I did a general listening on you right now, tomorrow it might be a different listening. It's, you know, kind of a, what is your body spending all this time, energy, and resources trying to manage. Um, and yeah. then from there, go to local listening, which is through the hand, going, okay, is it more here? Is it more there? So, that fine tuning to get right to that spot. So despite what might be presenting as signs and symptoms, the general listening and the local listening um, help us kind of get to what might be the underlying cause. And we know that that's true when you treat that and then the general listening changes and the person's symptomology goes away or the range of motion, let's say, in a shoulder gets better, those kinds of things.
0: So yeah. And for our listeners that are curious about listening and this sort of hand placement on the top of the head, I want you to think about sort of those biotinsegrity toys that you might've had where it's like a rubber banded thing. And like, if you put your hand on that and kind of roll it around, you'll be able to feel where the tension is, especially if you push down because there's the elasticity and the inner pull. And it's the same idea when you're, you're placing on top of the head. And I know some of you might be thinking, well, like our hand can't be that sensitive. And I really want to highlight that like there are some sommeliers out there who can taste wine and tell you the year, the grape, and the angle of the hill towards the sun as well as the location it was grown at. And so, so like, like, we really do have great sensitivity and our hands do have the ability to feel that kind of integrity. I forget the size of the
1: dot a human hand can detect. Um, it's a very small particle exactly. like running over the skin. Um, I used to know that data, but basically it's smaller than the period in your text if you're reading a, a you know paperback book. And you look at how small a period is it's smaller than that just your fingers running over the surface can detect that so we can we can detect imperfections or uh, it almost necessarily say imperfections, we can detect. Bumps and things in our skin, in someone else's skin, with our hands that is so small, smaller than we can even see, but we can still feel. So our hands are much more sensitive than we give people credit for when we learn to listen to them. Yeah, or listen to our hands.
0: A little light pause. Okay. And so something that sort of that I really like that you said when we were sort of talking before this was like the body as a whole and greater than the sum of its parts. And I'm sort of curious of just like, do you wanna unfold that a little bit for me when you're thinking about sure. bodies? Absolutely. That, that is uh, one of the pillars of uh, class- osteopathy.
1: Um, th- this is one of the things I love to say that's different between medicine and a, and a mechanics shop. Sometimes it's kind of funny, right? If you brought your left front tire into a mechanic and said, can you fix my car? He would say, uh, ma'am, I need to see the whole car and you need to bring the whole thing together so I can figure out what's wrong with it and fix it right so that's a machine and I would argue that the human body is way more than a machine we're so complex as we already mentioned we're you know biological chemical electrical magnetic we have all these different fields about us and all these things interwork so you can't just take you know, like a robot part, like my left shoulder off and as a mechanic fix, fix my left arm and then I reattach it. And then, you know, I'm all better now. It works in synchrony with everything else. So it's not just bones and levers. You've got nerves, you have blood vessels, you've got lymph perforating and penetrating all those tissues and connecting back into my core, back into my whole. So as soon as you start trying to compartmentalize things and say it's an only this problem or it's only that problem. Um, you know, that'd be like me trying to say today, like there's only snow in Southern pines and that's all that matters. Cause that's where I live. Um, obviously weather is happening everywhere. And so maybe that's another mm-hmm. good way for people to think how things happen in the body, like weather, it happens everywhere simultaneously that. all the time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so, <sighs> I think a lot of times it's a failure to understand how a body is really built, or maybe it's because with cadaver studies we don't really appreciate how a live human being functions as opposed to a cadaver. I know like I like to joke around that live people and dead people are very different and I don't need a study to prove that um sure. the fascial system in, in a cadaver re- responds very differently than the fascial system in a live human being and so you know we work with live human beings that's what i need to know about um yeah. so a lot of times um Uh, physicians or med students who've grown up with these tissues being so inert because they've either been preserved in formaldehyde or they're frozen or whatever, and that's their understanding is from that dead dysfunctional model, and you can't use that. That's a a good map, if you will, for what a live person is like, but as we say, the map is not the territory. Dead people and live people are inherently different, and we should expect them to respond differently with different Mm -hmm. kinds of forces.
0: And it makes me think of um i processed deer of like and it was like a live shot and then we processed it within the hour and even as we were sort of processing skinning and like harvesting the meat Mm -hmm. we could watch the quality of the fascia change as one animal cooled down as sort of like it stopped getting that nourishment from the blood and it was so interesting to watch this like really elastic liquidy like almost snot that was connecting everything, just turned into this really thin, thin thing that would like so easily tear. And like in school, we had our own cadaver labs and really it was like wrapping paper that you would just sort of rip off the muscle. And Mm -hmm. so I think that you're exactly right with the more traditional medical model. We think of fascia as the wrapping um, rather than thinking about it as something that's holding and transferring the load as much as the muscles might be right absolutely yeah and I also like this idea of sort of there's weather everywhere and Mm -hmm. something we were talking about earlier is that like the messages from the body aren't insignificant right like the weather you have in your shoulder is significant so curious of just like what that means to you and sort of Breaking down the like Western medicine model when it comes to approaching injury? Sure. So um,
1: I'm in a retirement community um, as well as a military community uh, with Fort Bragg in my backyard. And so there's a retirement community. I've actually had, you know, 60, 70, 80 year old patients who have maybe they have uh, some congestive heart failure, they have multiple things, right? So they have multiple pathologies that have to be managed. And they will actually be told by their general practitioner um, if you have more than three symptoms, you need to make another appointment. Like, don't tell me more than three symptoms. <laughs> I'm like what? what? Yeah, what? Um, because all of your symptomology that you kept trying to give, in, in one particular case, I'm thinking of of uh, uh, one gentleman in particular that I treated for, gosh, 17 years. He was um, he was a post polio. Um, he suffered polio as a child and he also had a massive head injury um as a in the air force Uh, he was ejected from a jeep and landed in a freshly plowed field so um he was somebody that was always going to need a little maintenance just like that car that it needs a little bit of maintenance all the time um he was gonna always require some maintenance of some kind and um i said you know without them listening to all of your symptomology, they're not picking up on the fact that all the symptoms that you've recently had that you've described to me fit in line with your statin medication that you're taking. These are Mm -hmm. all the signs and you know, these are the side effects. And I said, you know, perhaps they need to look at that. And, you know, the doctor was like, "No, no, no, I think this is that, I think this is that. And then finally on the next visit, you know, her blood work wasn't looking good. And so they're like, well, now we're going to refer you to an oncologist because I I think you have, you know, some uh, some kind of hemoglobin disorder or possibly cancer. And I'm like, how do we go from, you know, just symptomology that, you know, don't bother me with all of your symptoms, only tell me a few to you now have cancer. And it was his wife who was a retired nurse who actually solved everything because she went and picked up his medications. And she said, why are you on two statins? And. He said, what do you mean? I, I'm not on two statins. I have my blood pressure medication and I have my statin. And he's like, one's a blue pill, one's a pink pill. She's like, no, you're on two statins. So through error of both the pharmacy, because a pharmacy gave him two statin drugs, a generic and a non-generic, um, stopped giving him his blood pressure medication. And through error of his physician, because his physician is the one who called it in, For four months, he was double dosing statin and not taking any blood pressure medication. Wow. So yeah, so his liver and a few other organs decided to have some stress on that. Not only that, his tissue is literally becoming um, like Formica (laughs) countertop. I mean, Mm -hmm. every week his fascia was getting harder and harder and harder. And, you know, so when he called the doctor to say, hey, I've been taking double statins for the last four months, that's what's going on. Should I stop taking them? And the doctor said, oh no, you can, you can still keep taking this. <laughs> and of course, you know the, not, not the double dose, the single dose. And of course, you know, um, I don't tell people what to do, but, but we, I engage in conversation and let them think through that. And he's like, I think my, my liver needs a break and I think I'm gonna not take any statins for a while. And about a week and a half, because I saw him every week and about a week and a half, a lot of his musculoskeletal symptomology and his tissue changes, um, all went away because, of course, he wasn't double dosing with that. And then his blood work returned to normal, and he did not have cancer and didn't need, yeah. you know, any of the things that were possibility there. So, um, <laughs> when we want to limit the information that our patients give us, either because there's a time crunch, right? I only have 15 minutes to listen to this patient, and then I have to do whatever objective data and then um, objective testing, and then get get them through and processed out. Um, that's going to affect things. Uh, My dad being a physician who is a pediatric cardiologist, he taught me from a very young age that 85% of diagnosis comes from history. So you have to listen to your patients and working with pediatrics, that means you have to listen to the parents because your infant can't tell you how they feel. You're listening for patterns of behavior that the parents describe and they need to be able to express that narrative So when we stop listening to what our patients say, like when they say, hey, when this happens and this happens and this happens, you know, these things are all related, Um, you know, and if you don't listen, they won't tell you all those symptoms that maybe are very personal, like a soldier who um, was having tension, headaches, pressure problems, like when he stood up kinds of things, but. Um, his main concern which it took a while for him to get that out was that after having sex with his wife he would pass out he'd lose consciousness and and you might think well gee that sounds great <laughs> but it wasn't by choice you know yeah, it's just it was a, switch, a switch was going off in his body and it was all about pressure gradients through his respiratory diaphragm through the brain where he could only handle pressure in the body so much. And when it would overwhelm systems, you know, the body takes care of itself, it shuts it down. So Mm -hmm. your body has this number one job, right? Stay alive. Every part of your body is trying to stay alive. So if we don't listen to all the things it's doing, which is telling us, like you said, our compensations, it's telling us how we're handling what our past situation was, all those past injuries, what current infectious vector might be coming in, all of those things, um, your nutrition, all of that, your body's trying to figure out how do I do all of these things and still do the things that you want me to do every day and things that were success strategies in the past that got you through, like the things that got me through my horse kick are still present to this day, which create a uh, resistance to lymphatic flow. So I have a lymphatic disorder in my legs and my abdomen, which I'm still working on in a number of ways and trying to remedy that. And it really has only showed up as a real problem now in my early fifties. Well, it wasn't, it was kind of always there, but for whatever reason, you know, sometimes it's that we don't, perceive the straw that breaks the camel's back that overwhelms the system. And then a system isn't able to perform anymore, but it all relates back to, uh, three or four, uh, concussions that I've had, which changes cranial pressure. And then of course the abdominal horse kick, which changed a whole lot of pressure right around my respiratory diaphragm. And, you know, you have your decent aorta there, you have your inferior vena cava, you, you have everything dumping the blood back into the chest. And so pressure systems is a whole nother thing that I, I don't think the average physician is paying attention to. They learned it in med school. Maybe they learned it in anatomy and they weren't really thinking of the body again, as a whole with all these pressure systems. And we have an ability to balance those things out. So if I have too much pressure in my head, I can offload that pressure into my abdomen, which doesn't have hard bony walls, right? My skull has a hard bony wall. My chest has a hard bony wall. Even my pelvis to a certain extent is in a, a bony bowl, so, I can blow things out through my abdomen to decrease pressure elsewhere. So, yeah. that's that everything being connected. And, and uh, you know, if you try and, if you don't listen to a person's entire history or into all of their symptoms, you can really miss the larger picture of what's going on because you're arbitrarily discounting a signal that the body is sending. Like, pain is a signal. Um, and you know, I hate it when when physicians tell them, "Well, it's probably all in your mind." I'm like, "Well, sometimes it literally is in your head, meaning yeah. a leaf on the tentorium, which is pulling on a cranial nerve." So they're sort of right in that it's in your head, but it's a physical thing in your head. It's not an yeah. abstract thing. It's not and to validate right. And physical, mental, and emotional pain is expressed into the fascial system all exactly the same way. So it doesn't really matter if it's emotional pain that should be treated any differently than the physical pain or the mental pain, like all of it all goes together.
0: Yeah. I definitely, I had a patient who in a a domestic abuse circumstance had injured her shoulder and for (laughs) a year she'd like done strengthening, done strengthening was still having a lot of pain. And I was like, okay, like why don't we work on bringing those emotions up that came up during that circumstance and load your shoulder while that's happening. And so we would sort of do this coordinated emotional physical relief, as well as like like physical empowerment of like the act of, of pushing something away because she'd been traumatized, right? And her boundaries had been violated. So we were sort of pushing out, which was the action that she felt weak with and pain with. And within four weeks, I'd reduced her pain more than she'd managed in a year right and so it's like this pain quote unquote would be like by most physicians labeled like emotional or in her head but that doesn't make it any less real it just changes how you need to approach it because I think really what physicians say when it's not real or it's in your head is it's not biomechanical as we understand it with Newtonian physics and like
1: And again, back to that fascial science, I don't think that they understand it It is literally in the fascial system in there. So I would say in the case of your patient, it was literally in her shoulder. And if you have uh, uh, another set of skills, so for example, in cranial sacral therapy, we can detect an energy cyst, which is an offloading of trauma into the fascial system, into a body part. You can actually feel where your body kind of said, um that's too much for my brain to process and you can offload it into the body you can offload it in the body's field and so so there's the same way
0: that like with an infection we would like sort of push it into like a cyst or a pustule like and encapsulate it so that the rest of the system doesn't have to deal with it
1: exactly amazing and so opening up those restrictions then frees up the body so it's not having to like move around if you think of it like an egg let's say so she had an egg in her shoulder so all that tissue has to move around this imaginary egg and it's not imaginary it's actually held in that fascial system there Mm -hmm. could have been a trauma vector coming in through there from you know where somebody had their hand or um you know or uh, any other kind of trauma so um trauma comes into the body in a straight line right so we have you know something coming into the body straight on, but then the way it's deflected into the body is very unique and very specific to the individual. So I might deflect it down through my hand. I might send it down over here. I might send it down into my wrist. um, I might send it more to the back of my hand, just depending on the tissue's ability to adapt in that moment, which is also affected by every other time that your fascia had to respond to a trauma. So falling off your bike when you're six and falling out of a tree later and all these other things, you know, limits how much your hand can respond to that trauma coming directly in. And so, you know, we are, I I love the, uh, the book, the body keeps the score, right? So yeah, yeah. Um, so your body's remembering all those things. Um, you know, my very first massage practice was called in touch massage therapy. And, and as a, I was studying to be a clinical psychologist and made a shift from that because I realized there were some limitations to what I wanted to be able to do in in helping people with clinical psychology. Um, But through massage, I felt like if I can just get you in touch with what's in your body, then you'll have the answers because you already have the answers. And that was before my cranial training. It was before my visceral training. And, but intuitively I knew that you have all the answers. And that's one of the things that we find and believe with these classical osteopathy techniques is that the body has wisdom, the body has the answers. And so if you just listen to it, you'll get the answers of how to help best your patient.
0: Yeah. And even today, like psychotherapy is making this transition towards somatics. And one of the big things Mm -hmm. that it's also a transition from that medical model of like, there's something wrong with you and here's a diagnosis. It's more often like, how do we train your emotional resilience? So your own inner psychological resilience and strength that you can utilize when you're coming up against those more mental things. And so, and like that is really sort of Western versus this more contemporary model that we're transitioning to of, one, the body's really wise and you as yourself are complete. And so what you need to do is to really find like, how can you access your own inner strength and use that as a tool to support you?
1: Yeah. As a cranial therapist, we would talk about being a more whole integrated human. So if you've put an energy cyst here and an energy cyst here and here, that's information that you don't have access to because it's encapsulated. Mm. So if I, if I integrate those um, encapsulated m- might be a memory, might be an emotion, might just be something physical. We don't know until it's open. But as you integrate all those parts of you that are walled off and shut down, you become a more complete, integrated human. And that's ultimately the goal. Um, yeah. You know, the advanced goal of cranial psychotherapy is self realization, which most people don't realize that. Sounds like Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the, and me being a therapist, the best thing that I can bring to the table to work with my patients is a more wholly integrated therapist. So I do my work so that I can bring that uh, integrated self to the table. And and, um, energetically, that also kind of serves as a model. I mean, we work with each other in frequency. Um, So if I'm whole and integrated, Uh, the bodies in the room know the things that my body has gone through that knows the wisdom that I've figured out and integrating my own past traumas and things like that. So, um, it kind of gives that, that transmission that there, there is a solution here. There's a way, there's a way forward.
0: Yeah. And sort of to like, for people that are like, I don't know, that sounds a little woo. The way (laughs) they anchor that in, in Western (laughs) medicine is actually called mirror neurons. And these are neurons which they receive visual input of like what someone else's body is doing, and then it will provide the input to you as if your body is doing that. And so it's literally a mirror of your body being like, what does it feel like to do what that body's doing? It's why when you see someone get their knee blown out or the ACL torn, you go, ooh, and you kind of like feel it in your own body because we do actually have a reference point for feeling into and seeing someone else's wellness or not wellness. And then we experience it ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, most
1: of it is just, again, anything that sounds too woo, I would just say, if you have a better understanding of the flow of energy and physics and quantum physics, then it all starts becoming
0: things that we have mathematical models for. So, As soon as Um, I started learning, like they teach Newtonian physics in school, but as soon as I started mm -hmm. learning about more quantum physics, so much of what goes on in the body makes a lot more sense.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's the perspective of, you know, if you took a flashlight to, uh, you know, uh, people back in, I don't know, let's just say, you know, the Brahmin times, if you brought a flashlight in, it would look like magic. Right. And we know it's science. So what is magic and what is science that's been changing through the centuries all the time i mean the first electric light bulb all these things you know it's like looks like magic and then it's like no it's science so um and i know science has gotten a bad name right now with some of the things that are going on in the world but there are certain principles of things that we know and then there are things that we're learning all the time and that's that's the thing about science is that it's constantly changing what we used to believe true. And then the other point that I like to make when people are like, well, I don't know about all this, right? Well, one is you don't need to believe in anything that I'm telling you for a release to happen in your body and for therapy to occur. So it's not, it's not a religion. It's not a belief system. It is just something that biomechanically, biophysically, bioenergetically works in your body. Um, And then the other thing is I'll say, um, do you know how energy works? Or do you know how um, energy flows through your house can you explain to me how your cell phone works like this device at the uh component level can you explain to me how it works and most people can't but that doesn't stop us from making a phone call and playing you right. know candy crush and lord knows all the other things we do on here so <laughs> we can use the tool without understanding it all Absolutely. and even the way you charge this device, the way your house is wired, is based on a theory. We have a theoretical knowledge of how circuits work and how energy works and how electricity works, and that's the theory by which we wire our house. And it doesn't impede you from charging your phone at night. That it's a theory that we're working on and not a scientific law, because as you know, there are so few laws, and it's because. So those are the things that never, never change. Yep. So we use a lot of theories with great effect. We drive cars based on theories. So
0: gravity is still just a theory at this point because we don't actually understand the how or the why when you really get into the deep, deep parts of it. Right. Yeah. I'm
1: going to see if I can get my little helper to come over here. Calvin. Calvin, Calvin. Come on, Calvin. And then this is my other therapist who works in my office with me.
0: Oh, look at him, Calvin is a cute little pupper.
1: He is the, the therapy fat dog. To, <laughs> him um, this is the parasympathetic model. So um, most of us are familiar, as you mentioned, with the mirror neurons, but you know how being around a really relaxed person or a really relaxed animal makes you relax because we like to follow that parasympathetic state and get into rest and digest. So Calvin comes into my office and he sits on his dog bed and he snores, or if if you're lucky and he asks to snuggle with you and you want him on the table with you, he will sit on the table with you while I treat you and he helps everybody relax. And even the soldiers say, your dog snoring is so relaxing.
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah, I mean, and that's sort of like the more polyvagal piece, which is a whole other world of how our nervous systems regulate. Absolutely sweet okay well I definitely I like I love talking to you I always have um, and so I'm really grateful you took some time I do want to make some space for you to like sort of talk about where your clinic's located if people want to reach out to you if they're curious um, and sort of things like that so. okay
1: um, well I'm located in Southern Pines North Carolina my business is Farina Integrated Therapy um, I treat patients, uh, mostly in these classic osteopathy techniques. So, um, I have a small practice where I have other practitioners that work with me. Um, so if you're looking for just like general sports massage and things like that, we can accommodate you as well. I personally am seeing people who want these more advanced techniques. So you have the mysterious pain that you don't know what's going on with, or, um, the chronic problem that, you know, you've, you've done other things, you've done some traditional physical therapy, you've done some chiropractic, and it's still nagging you, I get those kinds of patients. Um, I've been, uh, lately, I've been having patients refer to me from a functional medicine physician when she's aware that there's a somatic uh, connection into somebody's pain. You know, if you've been in chronic pain for a long time, there's probably a somatic issue yeah. involved. You know, where you have some emotions in there that it just makes it much easier to treat the body as a whole when things can be discharged and been brought back into balance. Um, uh, I deal with a lot of uh insomnia, anxiety, um, well, you're those
0: so things. up with everything that's gonna happen
1: absolutely. absolutely. I, um, so helping to, to regulate those things. Um, I'm trying to think what else you asked. <laughs> 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 You know,
0: like just sort of like the plug so that people could know where to look for you, where to find you, and the things that you're liking to work with right now. And I think that's that's you got it. yeah,
1: that's it. Um as you know, i've I've been working on opening up. I've been trying to find a space to open up a larger facility where we can have healing intensives and seminars to improve the skills of therapists, all kinds of body workers, and et cetera. And that's still something, you know, future plans are still hatching on that, but I'm trying to get this message out to as many people and there is something really profound. I I was lucky enough to participate in some of the intensives down at Upledger. And when you have uh, 10 patients in a room for five days with four therapists with their hands on that particular patient for five days, the vibration and the energy that you create in that room, the, the things that, you know, like you, you can have your hands on one person's Heart, and you know that you're affecting everyone else's heart in the room at the moment because we're all in community with each other. And it's yeah. a powerful way to get a jump start on whatever it is that's going on in your body that might need some help. So, for people who have had really chronic conditions or have um, some severe traumas or, or other things that they're trying to integrate, those intensives can be really, really helpful um, yeah. because it I gets you. Like-
0: there's like a whole conversation there about the importance of healing in community. Life. Yeah, absolutely. I firmly believe that
1: we need each other and there's a reason why we can't just fix ourselves. Yep. You know, like, cause I've had people say to me, you know, all this stuff, Mary Alice, how come you can't fix your own problems? And I'm like, that's because I can't be my own physician. <laughs> you know? It's like, you know, it's important that we have a healing community. It's important that we need others, I think, um, yeah. to be well that that's part of how it works. So, and the path that I'm on in solving my own personal health issues is going to help somebody
0: else in the future. So. It's the way of the wounded healer. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, we're so lucky to have you in this area. I think you're an amazing resource, especially for like other practitioners, but also for your clients. And so I'm really glad that you're here. Well, thank you.
1: And um, I guess I should mention if um, I haven't done a lot of it lately, um, last year with my mom, or this past year with my mom passing away, but I do have an Instagram, which is fascia mafia. Um, and I do talk about a lot of these different principles, and there will be some more writing to come. I've given myself some space to, to mm. do some healing right now, but um, I have lots of different soapboxes. So if you're interested in hearing, we that, love it.
0: I love a good soapbox
1: these soap boxes or uh, analogies to explain how the body works. That's a place where you can find some of that. So sweet.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. You're very welcome. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to the functional physio podcast. We hope that you found it helpful for each podcast we will include show notes. So if you're curious about a reference of what we mentioned, feel free to refer to the literature and references there. We hope this episode helped you think about the way you move and how your body is your ally. As you navigate this life, any thoughts about our podcast, shoot me an email at JJ functional physio or follow us on Instagram. If you're curious about working with us or who we are, Check us out at FunctionalPhysioPT.com. Thanks so much.